I don't need to convince you that putting on a good live show is super important to having a successful music career. So let's talk with a music director for someone who is on big arena tours about how to do that best. Welcome to episode nine of Behind the Band, a podcast where we're all about helping you grow a successful music career by talking with awesome artists and people from the industry. Hey, my name is David Ryan Olson, and I run Evergreen Records, where we are all about helping artists like you grow. So I am honored that you've decided to join me today. Real quick before we jump in, if you're working on new music and want to know how to release and promote that for maximum success, would love for you to sign up for our free workshop, Rock the Release. It's going to teach you how to plan and promote so that you can get on blogs and playlists and shared by influencers. So to sign up for that, just head over to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop to sign up for Rock the Release. Today's guest, Kyle Perrin, is a guy that I've known for a couple of years, and he's an awesome, awesome person, really great and fun to hang out with, but he's also a killer guitar player that has landed him the gig of music director for a bunch of different artists on big tours. And so I wanted to invite him on the show to talk about a couple of things like how can you throw a good show? How can you practice effectively? And then just also just general tips of what he's learned from being in the trenches of big production music industry. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Kyle Perry. All right, I'm here with Kyle Perrin. How are you doing, man? I am reasonably not thirsty because I have my delicious sparkling water with me, so I'm doing great. All right, what's the sparkling water of the day? It's the Target brand, Good & Gather. It's the grapefruit sparkling water. And just so you know, reasonably unthirsty is a very scientific term, so feel free to use that in the future. I definitely will. There's yeah. a lot of LaCroix or generic LaCroix consumed on this podcast, so yes. that will be our term going forward. Reasonably <laughs> unthirsty. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Royalties go to you now. Yeah. You must, you must drink in perpetuity for me. <laughs> well, man, super stoked you finally joined us today. Yeah, man. Thanks uh, for having me. Would love to just jump in and uh, share us your story. I'm a 30 year old bum who somehow found a way to make a living in the music industry. <laughs> um, and you can just cut right there. We're done. Done. That's a, I think that's enough. Now, I grew up in Southern Oklahoma, despite being born in Texas. I feel like I need to say that because Oklahoma really is just not the most fun state to be in for any reason. It's pretty exotic. Yeah, right. Uh, you see what um, I did there? This is my Uncle Joe always used to tell me. <laughs> anyway, um, now. So born in Texas, raised in Oklahoma, really tiny town. There wasn't really much of a music scene there. I started playing guitar and piano whenever I was a kid. I think I was in like third or fourth grade, fifth grade, something like that. Um, whenever I started playing piano and I think I picked up guitar around sixth grade. My dad was a musician and my brother got into guitar. He was a lot older than I was. Um, so it was always something that I like was in the house. So loved it, knew that I always wanted to do something in music. I never really had a clear vision and never really had any type of you know, concrete thought about what that could look like. But I just knew that I just always kind of felt like my life was just going to be, you know, involved with music somehow. And I just practiced a ton, played a ton. And just, I came up as a guitar player, moved to Texas whenever I was a teenager. And I got to a little bit bigger of a city that had like a local gig scene. Um, and I, 
you know, was able to meet some people who kind of helped me get worked into that scene. And I started subbing for people. And then those sub gigs turned into regular gigs. And then, you know, just kind of grows from there. But I came up as a guitar player kind of in the Texas country blues scene. That's where a lot of my chops came from. Uh, despite the fact that I can't, like I grew up on metal. Like I'm a huge metal head. <laughs> um, I love metal. So a lot of my technical facility that I have comes from like the metal world. Um, but a lot of the taste and a lot of like the chord coloring and a lot of the, um, you know, how I move in and out of phrases and things like that um, come from, you know, blues, Texas country, country background, just because that's what was available for work. I don't necessarily listen to that type of music, um, but I wanted to play and that was what was available to play live. So I did that and developed my ear, you know, doing the cover band thing for a long time. You know, you learn 200 songs and you go play them live for four hours a night and you know, you learn how to learn really fast. So yeah, it was cool. So that's a little bit about that. And then I moved to LA, went into the pop industry. So one of the things that we talk about on the show a lot is the concept of getting your reps in or 10,000 hours or mm-hmm. however you want to put it. How much of, do you think your success today is based on the fact that you got so many of those reps in you weren't necessarily trying to go out there and, and say, I'm trying to get my band to make it. You were just out there playing music and, and getting your hours in. Yeah, that's a really great question. I think a lot of the groundwork was laid whenever I was a kid, you know, and, and it came from just liking it. You know, I just really liked to play guitar and I really liked to listen to music and I liked to learn new things. And that that like turned into a love and then that love turned into an obsession and then that obsession turned into a career, you know. And that was kind of like the natural progression for me of just really enjoying something and then always looking for ways to do it more and at the next level. So I had a distinct advantage of of developing that interest whenever I was a kid, because you're right. I did, you know, I sat in my room for hours a day. I mean, 10,000 hours is a 40 hour work week for four years, you know, and that's like, so like I had, you know, if you want to boil it down to that, I had multiple jobs as a kid of just practicing, you know, (laughs) um, uh, you know, and that helped a lot because there was a lot of stuff that I already knew how to do. And there was a lot of, you know, ways that I, interacted with my instrument that I just, I was already familiar with. I didn't have to learn certain things whenever I started playing live. And even whenever I went to music school, there was some stuff that I just didn't have to do, you know, and I was able to focus on other things and I was able to move a lot faster and, you know, putting in the time and practicing a lot whenever I was younger was helpful. Yeah. And then being put into an environment where I had like dates on the calendar and I was forced to learn stuff. Otherwise I would just be like blacklisted and never called back. Uh, That's a pretty good (laughs) motivator too. Um, fear of never getting hired. <laughs> I just ask because I know there are a lot of people out there that say, well, yeah, you know, I kind of just play every once in a while. It's just a matter of, you know, the right person here in the song and then I'll be famous. And to a certain extent, your story is the opposite of that. Where... Yeah, almost, almost entirely. It's the opposite of that. Yeah, my, that, is, that is not my experience, you know, and, and that's not a lot of people's experience. You know, a lot of people experience what I experience, which is you practice and then you put in the time and you meet people that help you get worked into the industry and then you start working steadily and you just constantly try and always make yourself be available and easy to work with and, and try and network to the point to where you can just always pick up the phone and always have a skill set to offer and be friendly, you know, and then a lot of people do that and then still never get work because there's like 
millions of people at any given time that do the same thing that you do, you know, and there's just so much competition, especially if you're a, a guitar player. There's on some level, like I'm really glad I'm a guitar player and on an entirely different level, I'm really jealous of every other human being that has <laughs> never even touched a guitar. Um, Cause there's just so many of us. There are very few people that I know that like just kind of fell ass backwards into a career. It's just not really how it's not realistic, you know, and you can, you can dream and, you know, but if you're casual about it, then you're going to get casual results, you know, because that's just not how that's not how stuff happens. And I do want to point out, if if music is a hobby for you, that's 100% fine. Oh, absolutely. There's I'm just wrong trying to dispel a myth <laughs> that yeah, I would, success I will, just happens. I'll happily reinforce that. That's just not realistic <laughs> to believe that that's going to happen for you. You know, you can, you can go to bed at night and really wish that that is going to be your story. And there might be a day where that comes true. But you need to understand if you're listening and you think that that's going to happen, you need to also acknowledge that like math is fucking way against you on that one. <laughs> it's not likely <laughs> that that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, the best thing you can do for yourself is just practice and be prepared. You know, reference other people that are doing what you want to do. That was the biggest thing for me. So like my best friend was a guitar player. He's a few years ahead of me and he already had a lot of really great gigs on lock and um, traveled and you know, he did sessions and played on records and he was a really great resource. And I was really thankful to know someone that was already doing what I wanted to do, you know, and I was really thankful and grateful to know someone that was doing that well. So, um, I was able to learn a lot from that. Uh, but even if you don't have that advantage, look at people that are doing what you want to do and then start digging and trying to find out why it's working for them and what got them there. And then just work backwards. I mean, you can still have an identity in your career, and learn a lot from how someone else has modeled their behavior to get to where they are, you know? Yeah. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive things. But yeah, I think back to your original point, you can't just assume that something's going to happen just because you want it to. That's called entitlement. And that usually doesn't work out very well for people, especially if you don't plan or prepare. So even if you do get lucky, you've still got to follow through. You know, you still have to make a great record and you still have to be easy to work with and you still have to be consistent and show up, you know? So even if you do get lucky and, and get a break or someone hands you something, which, you know, at some point someone will probably do you a favor, you know, I'm not saying that that's not going to happen. People do favors all the time. You're probably not going to get a blank check, but even if you do, you have to like show up and do your end of the deal now, you know? So that's the other side of that too. Even if you do get lucky and get a break, people are going to pull that luck away from you really fast if you don't show up and, and prove to them that they were right to give you a chance, you know? Well, let's keep cruising on a little bit of your story. After you've put in your reps in Texas as a teenager, decided to move to LA, mm. walk us through what that decision and that move was like. So I did, yeah, I did the Texas thing and I lived there for a little under 10 years and then got married and Amanda and I decided pretty quickly that we wanted to have more opportunities. My wife's a registered dietitian and so nutrition is definitely more accessible in LA and at the time she was working a lot in fashion too and it's a lot more broad and a lot more available in LA than it is in West Texas. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we just decided to move. We got married and then three months after we got married, we moved to LA. We didn't know anybody. We didn't even really have a plan other than we felt like we needed to be there and we felt like it was going to be better for us. And we just wanted to go and try it and see what that looked like. Um, it ended up going pretty well. Within a couple of months, I was able to network and meet some people who were very kind and very willing to give me auditions and like, let me come meet other people and come to some hangouts and stuff like that. How how did you do that? You you get out of the car and 
you know, you unpack your stuff. What, what do you do? Um, I pray that the landlord I met on Craigslist has my keys first. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and then she did. So now (laughs) good. Yeah, dude, side note. We found our apartment on Craigslist because the apartment that we applied for just got taken away from us like randomly last minute. We were on the plane. We flew, we had a layover in Dallas. We flew back, we flew back from LA to Dallas. We got off the plane. I had a missed phone call and it was like the building manager for this complex or the landlord or whoever. And they were like, yeah, we decided to like not approve your application. We wanted to go with someone else. And I was like, but I already like gave you my money. And they were like, yeah, we're going to refund that. Don't worry about it. And I was like, well, no, I'm worried about it because now I'm homeless. And they were like, welcome to LA. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so in the, ter- in the terminal in Dallas, we, I immediately get on the phone. We found this apartment on Craigslist that we had seen before, but we were like, eh, let's just go with the other one. So we ended up just calling the lady up and she was like, yeah, it's available. And I was like, can we just put a deposit down? She's like, yeah, that sounds great. And we're like, God, this could be a really bad decision. Um, <laughs> so we went home and then took like another month to just like pack up, say bye to family and wrap up a few things. And, and then we moved to LA and we got there and it turned out to be really great. And we were really thankful for that, but it was super hectic anyway. So yeah, um, I love to tell that story because I rented an apartment on Craigslist in an airport 3,000 miles away from <laughs> where I wanted to move. Uh, and it worked out. So... Um, having, you know, I say all that to say like, fuck LA, um, like real hard, but no, LA is great. We love it. We got into the city and I, I knew a guy who was friends with, with my best friend. I'd never met him, like knew he was like in the friend circle. And we like went to the same music school. And despite being on the board of advisors for this music school, he and I had never met. Um, but I just reached out to him on Facebook and this was 2014 and I just shot him a message. I was like, Hey man, I think you're buddies with like a couple of my friends. Um, you know, we went to the same school, obviously years apart, but I'm in LA. I would love to just know someone in the city. Can I buy you a drink? And can we just like grab lunch? And that was all I asked. Like I didn't, I wasn't like, Hey man, I'm looking for work or whatever. And I think it's important to understand that like, I, th- I think that part of what went well for me was that people didn't feel like I was trying to get something from them because I wasn't. I genuinely just wanted to know somebody in the city. Yeah. You know, that helps because at the end of the day, people are willing to help people that they feel like are like themselves or that they feel like are genuine or kind. And like, obviously, some people need help. They need guidance or they need networking or they need, a you know, you throw them a bone for a gig or something like that. But at the end of the day, they're much more willing to help you if you're just genuine and you're just nice. So I obviously wanted to ask him about career advice and about what the scene was like in LA and getting work into stuff. But I knew that that would come up organically. Uh, so I just was like, dude, do you just like want to go get lunch? He was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So we went and got Chinese food and I was like, can I just ask you about like kind of your experience coming to LA and you know what, you know, if you have any advice, if not, let's just eat lunch and hang out. Like no big deal. He was like, yeah, totally. He gave him, he gave me a lot of great advice and he gave me a phone number of a guy. He was like, Hey, a lot of people do church gigs whenever they get out of town, um, to supplement their income and to meet other musicians. And so this guy is an MD at a couple of big churches. So like, why don't you give him a call? And, um, you know, you can just start from there and like, you'll get to know people. So I did that. I ended up not doing any of those church gigs because, you know, he recommended me. He was like, Hey, I got your number from a buddy who I really trust. And, you know, a friend of mine is going on a world tour. They need a music director and a tour manager and a guitar player. And, um, it was, it was a, it was a fairly large international, uh, pop tour. And I, I got called and I went on the audition and there was like seven or 10 or something, other people that auditioned and I ended up getting it. 
like, so within like two or three months of moving to LA, I like reached out to, you know, a mutual friend was able to meet some people, network a little bit, get called for an audition. And then, you know, because I was prepared and like, I was really meticulous about making sure that I like had the gear that I needed to have learned what I needed to learn. It was not very hard for me to just learn those songs and do a good job on the edition and be nice and be likable. Like those things are not difficult to do. It, like all it takes is doing them. Like there's not an inherent <laughs> skill set. Like you don't have to work hard to be nice. You know what I mean? Like you just have to do it. Like you don't have to work hard. For me anyway, in my opinion, like I, I honestly, I don't think it's very hard to learn how to play an instrument well. It's really, really time consuming, you know, but it's not necessarily difficult. And it might be at the beginning, you know, if you're trying to form muscle memory and things like that, but it's just not, I mean, it's not like a, like a car fell on you and you're trying to lift it off by yourself. Like that sounds fucking hard. You know what I mean? Like playing guitar <laughs> does not sound that hard. You just have to put time and effort into, into knowing the right way to learn how to do that and the right way to learn how to apply that. I got really lucky. I, I reached out to a mutual friend and he was a really great buddy and he helped me and gave me some good advice and he he gave me a phone number and and told me to to hit up that guy. That guy turned out to be really nice, you know. And it just went from there. And you know, and that's what happens. You just you just have to trust, you know, that at some point you're gonna get you're gonna get lucky and people are gonna be nice and want to help you, you know. But you have to do yourself a favor and be willing to ask for help, be willing to receive help, and be willing to be kind and be genuine, you know. And then on the technical side, like make sure you have the right tools for your job. You know, if, if you're putting yourself out there to get work, then you need to be available when people call and you need to have the right gear and you need to have the right crap, you know? It would be very hard for me to come to LA and try to make it as a touring and session guitar player and have one guitar and two pedals and an amp. You know what I mean? Like that would be- Or a Line 6 Spider. Yeah. And, you know. <laughs> well, if I would have moved out with a Line 6 Spider, they probably would have just, I wouldn't have even had to audition. They would have just given me the gig. Um, so- <laughs> Because they, they know you're insane. They know, yeah. They're like, you know what? We trust your judgment. So getting getting a gig after like a couple of months in town was really great. What was the show? It was a guy named Tyler Ward. He was like a, a really big YouTube um, musician. And he was like one of the early guys on YouTube that kind of made like covers big, like covering songs on your YouTube channel. It was cool. I mean, we went all over Europe and Canada and then we did the US twice. It was, it was a super fun tour. It was a headlining tour. We did, you know, a few thousand people a show, and it was a blast. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever been to Europe. It was actually the first time I'd ever been to Canada. It was a super fun tour. You know, he and I are still friends. It was, it was cool. I learned, I learned a lot about, you know, about just, like, what, what touring on, the, like, the next level up was, you know, because up until then, I'd only ever done, ever done, like, van tours or, like, you know, like around your state or, you know, with buddies or stuff like that. And this was the next step up of like, all right, we're on a bus. Like we're headlining, we're playing like decently large venues, you know, and people are buying tickets and shows are sold out and, you know, you have to go do your job and <laughs> make people feel like they made a good choice to <laughs> give you their money. So, yeah. Tell us more about what it's like being on a, a big tour like that. Yeah. I mean, bigger tours are even, are even crazier. I mean, like that was like a medium sized tour of like, thousand to two thousand cap rooms and like you know decent sized clubs and theaters and it was cool it was super fun so that level of touring to me is always really exciting because it's big enough to feel like you're in a big room and you have the energy of a big room but you're also not super detached from the crowd like you are in an arena and i can still walk to the edge of stage and there's someone like 10 feet away so it's it's really exciting as a musician to be able to interact with people that way you gotta show up on time 
you know, you got to make sure to not mess up, do your job. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of it that's fun and there's a lot of downtime, um, but there's work time and you got to just like not piss it away and just be like, oh, this is awesome. I'm just living the dream. It's like, well, you're going to wake up if you don't do your job right. So not going to be a dream anymore. It was a blast though. I really liked it. I have a lot of really fond memories and some, some people that are lifelong friends of mine were, were made on that tour. That's the first time I'd ever done a bus tour. And so it just like blew my mind. I was like, you can tour in a tour bus. This is awesome. And it just like, it was the coolest <laughs> thing ever. Like sleeping in a bunk. Like I never wanted to leave my bunk. I was like, I have a curtain and there's an air conditioning vent in here and the TV doesn't work, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> It was cool, man. It was really fun. Um, bus tours are a blast. I did I did a lot of bus tours for a lot of years, and then I, I got to the point to where um, a lot of the artists that I was getting called for would, um, I would just fly and meet them, and then I'd come home. So that was really nice, too. I, I had more time at home whenever I did that, but it was a more exhausting way to travel. Um, it's way, it's, it sucks because you're, you know, it may take three days to drive you know, to, uh, across a portion of the country, but you can just sit on the bus and sleep the whole time. It's not hard. Whereas if you're flying, you know, I could fly out for the gig and then fly home, but like getting on three or four, sometimes five or six different flights over the span of like two days is like physically exhausting. Um, so there's a trade-off. Like I have more time at home, but I'm drained. Touring on that level was really cool. And it was super fun because I still felt like I had this intimate connection with the crowd in venues that size, but they, they have the energy of a bigger venue. So I think like the medium to large kind of like theater size tours were always my favorite uh, for that reason. What's it like playing a show of that size compared to like a smaller bar gig or a, you know, even like a van tour where, you know, maybe you have a couple hundred people or you know, the barking thing was always really fun to me because I have really fond memories of that just because it was the first time that I ever really got to play music live in front of people. So for me, it was always like associated with getting to do something for the first time. So I would get on stage and I would get to play and I'd get to hang out with my buddies and everyone was having a good time. And I, you know, I took chances and I experimented and I did things that were, you know, that sometimes didn't always work out, but I got to learn in real time, you know, and there's a lot of value in that. And, you know, whenever you're doing like the local gig scene, you're doing the bar scene, you're gigging with buddies and doing the cover band thing, you know, that's the time for that. That's the place for that to kind of experiment and have fun and see what works and, you know, take chances, step out of your lane, you know, and like, that's, that's, that's the time to do that. you know, um, because people just want to have a good time. They're eating dinner, they're drinking, they're out at a, you know, their bar, everyone's, you know, they, they want to dance. And so it's like, you can just, you can be silly and you can have fun. You can take chances and you're not really going to get penalized for it, you know, to some degree. And so, you know, once you start to bump up to that and you start doing tours where it's like people are buying tickets, they're coming to your shows, you know, it's, it's paying for all of your production. That's a little different. You don't, you don't really take chances in that environment, you know, at least, at least not like you would, you know, in a bar, but it was fun, you know, th so that's why I was like, the energy feels the same to me. So like, I always loved the energy of a, of a room that only held like 200 people um, because I felt like it was just, everyone had this collective energy and it was like shared and it wasn't like I was trying to like react to a certain part of the crowd or I was trying to get like a certain part of the room to respond or whatever. It's like, everyone's just kind of there on top of one another and it's just a blast and it's just loud and sweaty and it's just, it's, it's just really fun. But you know, so then you bump up and you get to like theaters and like larger clubs and a little bit bigger venues. It'll hold like five 800 people, sometimes a 1, thousand, 1500. Um, 
to me, I always felt like I still had that energy. And so I still felt the same way on stage, but I felt more like a rock star because the room was bigger and there was more people. Now, I remember the first time I stepped on the stage, on, on the stage in a, in a room that held like a thousand people. It was like, oh my God, this is Wembley Stadium. The fucking, holy shit, I am queen. Like it was like the most <laughs> unbelievable feeling in my life to walk into a venue that held a thousand people. Um, and it's, dude, it's, to this day, I get someone call me up, you know, whenever all the world's not ending and I go play a show in a room like that. I would still, it would be a blast. I would love it. After that tour, what were some of the things that tour led to? I learned a lot about touring in terms of like, cause I did a lot of tour managing too. And so like, I learned a lot about what it meant to like properly advance a tour and what it meant to properly deal with venue staff and things like that. You know, like what? Well, so not all venues are easy to deal with. So <laughs> you have to learn when to be nice and accept the fact that not everyone's good at their job. And you also have to learn when to push back you know, and, and defend your band and defend your crew and defend yourself, you know, cause like some people will just take advantage of you. Some people won't want to pay. Some people will be assholes about load in time or they'll tell you that the schedule is different. Or they'll be like, well, sorry, you know, curfews, you know, 11 PM. And I'm like, we go on stage at 10, 15, you know, I, I had a lot of conversations with this. That is the one thing that sucks whenever you're on a, on a smaller tour, or even like a medium sized tour is that you're dealing with a lot of people that only ever really work locally. So they, they kind of think that they're like the local rulers and like they're, they can just kind of do whatever they want. And I'm like, well, you don't understand. It's like, I'm an, I'm, I'm part of a national headlining act. And like this show has been booked for three months. It's sold out. And so tonight we are paying all of your bills and there's, you know, 1100 people in line outside and we go on at 10, 15. And if you're telling me we need to be out of here by 11, you're going to have a big fucking problem. So your options are to let us go to midnight or we're going to leave right now. And you're going to deal with all the refunds. And almost 100% of the time. And by almost, I mean, 100% of the time it wasn't a problem. <laughs> So, and because I wasn't arguing on the behalf of something that was unreasonable or wrong, I was arguing on the behalf of the contract that was advanced. And so like, that's why you always need to put things in writing, make sure to have an email chain with multiple people copied on all of the conversations you're having leading up to things and show up with the contract that you got signed in advance. So that's what you need to do. So that's the moral of that story. So that's like a lot of the administrative type things that I learned from that level of touring that definitely carry up, in, you know, up the ladder to, to bigger scales and larger scales of touring because um, some things just don't change, you know. So yeah, after that tour, I got called. Um, so there's a girl that bought onto that tour that opened up for um, the artist that I was with. And afterwards, her camp like really liked what I did. And so they brought me on to be her music director and guitar player. And I ended up being with her for a couple of years. And, you know, we, we did a lot of opening tours for a lot of bigger people. Um, and then after that, I, you know, I, I moved on and I started being able to get with other headliners and do bigger tours, do more international tours and um, do arenas and big festivals and stuff like that. And so... Um, what were some of the big shows you played or big tours? So I music directed for, well, I still do music direct for an artist named Logan Henderson. Um, he was part of a band called Big Time Rush. Uh, it was a big Nickelodeon band. And then they put out a few albums, toured for several years, and then they all started to, wanted to do their own thing. And then he started his solo career. And then um, pretty much from the beginning of him starting to perform live, I, I've been with him. Uh, and it's been a few years now. And so we, we've done a lot of acoustic shows. We've done a lot of bigger shows. I mean, we did, we've done a couple of Jingle Balls. We did a Wango Tango. We did, um, uh, I mean, we've sold out 
we've, you know, we've done Mexico city shows. Uh, we did a national tour. It was really fun last year, I think early last year. Yeah. So Logan and I still do stuff together. You know, I'll play on things, you know, just the other day, actually I sent off, um, I sent off some tracks for him for, for a project and, um, that was really fun. Uh, I also got on with an artist named Starly. She's an Australian artist and she and I did a lot of, um, larger international stuff. We co-headlined, um, uh, the Corona festival in, in Okinawa in Japan last summer with capital cities. That was really fun. Um, and then this, oh my God, this really dope artist named channel trace. Uh, if you haven't listened to channel trace, like you have to, um, it's just life changing. It's the vibiest, like most understated, like underproduced, um, kind of like R and B hip hop. It's incredible. It's one of my, like, he's one of my favorite people to listen to now. Yeah. So that was fun. Starly, Starly was a dance artist. She transitioned, she's transitioning over to being a pop artist. Um, she has that song, uh, call on me. That's just like a massive hit. Um, she broke a lot of Spotify records with that song and it's got over, um, I think it's got like, it's in like the 700 plus million range on Spotify alone. It's over a billion worldwide, um, on like multiple platforms and she's, she's just killing it. That song was huge. And, um, she's, so it's been a lot of fun getting to work with her too. She and I, we were on the Katy Perry tour. Um, we did a lot of stuff with her and, you know, being an Australian artist, I, I fly over there a lot to do a lot of Australian festivals and, um, you know, we've done a bunch of stuff. It's been fun. We, we actually, um, performed, uh, the opening ceremony of, uh, the Invictus games, which is what Prince Harry does for like international wounded warriors. It's kind of like the Olympics. Um, so that was really fun. That was at the Sydney opera house and that was wild. Um, being, being there with the Royal family, it was crazy. <laughs> I got a protocol sheet advanced before I got there and was like, Hey, um, each piece of paper has a different member of the Royal family on it and they all have their own rules th- about how you're allowed to interact with them. <laughs> it was bizarre. And so after like the third or fourth page, I just was like, I'm just not going to leave the green room. I'm just going to solve everyone's <laughs> problems and just not go anywhere where I might see someone. And I ended up seeing Prince Harry backstage and I just fucking turned around and walked away. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to ruin this. Um, I'm just not going to ruin this. Uh, there's, I've seen more like, you you know, secret agents running around here than I have ever seen anywhere in my entire life. I'm just going to do everyone a favor and just remove myself from the situation. Yeah, that was fun. So like I, you know, I did a lot more work with, with a lot more artists uh, whenever I got off the Tyler tour. And then, you know, now I just, I'll do sessions. Um, I do flight dates. I don't really like to be gone for more than like four or five days at a time. So I, I usually don't. Unless it's with an artist like, you know, like with Logan, Logan's like a, a very good personal friend of mine now. And like, if he calls for, for something that's like a week or two, like I'm, I'm happy to go. Um, Starly's the same way. Starly, um, Starly's, we've gotten, our families have gotten close. And so she calls for something that I'm happy to like, just pick up and go. But for the most part, I, I don't like to leave for more than like a week at the most. So getting on those bigger tours, what was that like compared to even the, the medium sized tours? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, when you're in arenas, it's just a different energy. I don't know, man. It was cool. Like the first arena show I ever did, I just, like I walked out on a stage and there's 16,000 people there. And it was, I mean, it's really quiet on stage. <laughs> you know, they have those massive line arrays. Just, there's, not, there's no noise on stage, you know, because you're in in-ears and there's just, 
Um, the whole stage is reserved for your production and your staging and props and risers and everything. And so there's just no room for anything else. And so like you pull an in-ear out or God forbid a battery dies or something like that. And you're just, you're like, all right, cool. I hear this like weird echoey wash and then a stage manager screaming at me. That's what I hear. <laughs> uh, so now it's cool. The energy in the room's like, it's, I mean, once you get to that level, it's a physical energy. You know, it's not just this like excited, like you can see that everyone's having a good time and, you know, they're feeding off of the music and they're feeding off of what you're doing on stage. At that point, you you really can feel like air and energy like coming back at you. It's pretty bizarre. You know, you, there is somewhat of a disconnection because the stage is so far away for security reasons. You go to the edge of the stage and it's still like 15 feet before like the first barricade. It's It's a blast. It's... You know, I, I hope that people that want to do that get to do that someday because it's 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 a really crazy experience. They're super easy. I mean, at that point, everything's pretty much turnkey. You know, you show up and stuff's done. You know, stuff's unloaded for you. It's set up. You know, you get off stage and you go to the bathroom and get a drink, and then your all your gear is off stage and packed up. Um, it's it's definitely a luxury to be able to like tour on that level, just because there's so many people who are employed by the production. Uh, everyone has a job. So, and every job has a person to do that job. So there's not a lot that gets, you know, left out on tours like that, just because there's always someone to do something. There's always someone to ask um, how something gets done. So it's cool. I mean, like the, like tours on that level are a well-oiled machine, you know? Um, so anyone that you see working on that level is a pretty good person to, you know, observe their behavior because they got there by being really good and really efficient at what they do. So that was really cool to see. And it was really fun getting to, you know, get to know people that work on that level. Is there anything you miss about the spontaneity of the smaller gigs when you're on the big arena tours? Because I imagine everything is already, you know, pre-programmed kind of in Ableton. Yeah. There's not really a lot of like flexibility to just say, oh yeah, well, let's keep riffing on this, you know, solo or whatever. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely a lot less of that. It doesn't entirely go away. Um, whenever you're opening, it pretty much goes away because it's like, we only have a limited amount of time. So we want to do our set so that we can get the most out of the time that we're allowed to be on stage and then leave. When you're with a headliner, it's a little different because they have moments built into a set because they're on stage for 70, 80, 90 minutes, um, you know, and there's they, they want to have those those moments so that people can kind of like relax for a minute. And so there's still a little bit of that there. But even then, you're still operating within a pretty rigid box of like, hey, don't step out in this way, you know. But yeah, I do miss the bar. I actually, I talked to my wife about this uh, a lot. The spontaneity of being on like a small gig is just super fun. I love being able to just have an idea and be like, oh, when we come, like, you know, when we get to the bridge, like, I want to try this tonight because I think it'd be really fun, you know? And there's definitely gigs like that whenever you get to a big level. I mean, like, Tedeschi Trucks is a perfect example of a band that, you know, they they have their songs and they play their songs, but they, they do something different every night because they're just really musical people and they want to have that experience, you know, whereas someone on the other end of the of the spectrum is like equally successful and enjoyable but but you know their art is you know uniformed and they want to do the same thing every night because they want people to come to know their consistency and so it's just like you know it's it's different i you know i've never been on like a like a big like americana or blues or country tour like i've only ever done the pop thing and so i'm i'm very right. used to just being locked into a grid and being like here's your lines like please color within them tell us a little bit more about what it's like being a music director for a tour. You're basically responsible for the production 
depending on the type of gig and the, the level of MD that you are, um, that kind of depends on like how much responsibility and control you have over the set. So like on, on bigger tours, for example, you'll get, you'll get, you know, these Adam Blackstone guys, they'll come in and they'll, they'll pretty much do everything. They'll be like, Hey, here's your set list. Here's your order. We're going to, you know, give me the multi-tracks and the stems. We're going to arrange everything. We're going to create these musical moments. I'm going to go into, you know, SIR for two weeks before, uh, you know, before Katie even shows up and we're going to get the band up and we're going to work all these arrangements out. She's going to show up and then it's going to basically be like, you know, play into the same thing every night. And so on that, you know, on that level, you kind of control everything. And so like working backwards, you know, I've, I've MD'd on bigger tours and I've MD'd on medium and small tours and like the small and medium ones are, they, they tend to be a little bit more collaborative because there's not as many people involved. So the artist still wants to, um, the artist tends to want to be more involved. And so they'll ask questions and they'll be like, I want to be at the rehearsals, you know, even whenever you're prepping the band and when you're doing tech days and things like that. Cause like, I just want to make sure things are going the way that I want them to go. Their careers haven't necessarily gotten to that massive household name yet. And so they, they still want to make sure they're doing everything they can to help get it there. You know, when you get to this massive tour level, you know, a lot of these artists, it's really just a schedule thing. They have so much time that is a lot for other things they you know they only have so much time in a day so it's like you know i got rehearsals like literally one minute leading up to rehearsals i can go and then i'm there and then as soon as they're done i have to leave because i have to go do something else so i'm sure a lot of them would want to be there but based on my experience it's like you do a lot of prep work and then they show up and they expect it to be perfect you know you you climb down the ladder a little bit and those people are a little bit more they're a little more available because they have more time and they want to still maintain an aspect of control it's, it's really cool i mean my my workflow as a music director is like I like to know what the set is. Obviously, um, I like to know what the artist's goals are for their for their show, um, and then I love getting stems and multi tracks so that I can kind of put you know I can put put it together in a session and I can kind of like have a linear view of of the set and go you know what are my transitions going to look like what moments am I going to create and you know what kind of time are we working with stuff like that uh, how much of the tracks do I want to rely on versus how much of the band do I want to rely on at you know in any given song um, I don't think that's a right or wrong answer you know it's just whatever works and whatever you know whatever gets people excited on and off stage is the right answer you know so that's kind of my workflow you know I just I like to be as prepared as possible and for me it's getting a lot of that information and getting a lot of those tracks and files like way before I even interact with the band or the artist, you know, there's, there's a lot of situations to where I'm the MD and I play guitar and keys and then I run a playback rig and I run tracks and it's just the two of us on stage uh, with Starly. It's, that's the way it's always ever been. I'm, I'm the only person that's on stage with Starly. Wow. Uh, and, and a lot of the times with Logan, that's the way it's been, which is like, it's easier and harder. <laughs> you know, it's like every, everything falls on me. And so it's a little more stressful. However, it is like, I'm kind of a control freak and I don't have to rely on looping other people into the, into the equation because I'm trusted to make the right decision because I have, you know, a certain level of experience. So I'm, I'm able to just like make these decisions. Cause like, I know what they want. So I'm able to, for the most part, deliver pretty much exactly what they want whenever we show up, and it's it's good. So A lot of people listening, they are probably not on a path to be an, an MD for some sort of solo artist or something. Mm. They are probably, you know, a member of a band, or even if they are a solo artist, they aren't able to hire an MD. So a lot of the same responsibilities of planning the set and making sure that the show is fun for the audience yeah. just falls on them. What advice would you give to artists like that? Yeah, you're describing a lot of people. So I think just 
asking yourself what you want out of it. It's probably a really good first step. What are your goals for your set? What would you like your show to look like? And then just work backwards, you know, um, having a, so if you're a band and your goal is to sound like Muse, you know, or to have a, a show similar to Muse, no matter what size of room you're playing, you know, that's the end game. So you need to ask yourself like, what do I need tracks? You know, do I need to hire more people for my band? Can I afford that? Um, what, how does their set go? You know, things like that. Like, where do they create moments? And like, what songs do they leave untouched and play exactly like the record? And what songs do they kind of mess with and have fun from night to night? You know, so this is a pretty, it's a pretty good general overview of like kind of moving into to arranging your own set. It's just looking at people whose sets you admire and who you feel like might be similar to yours and just kind of like try to get a loose roadmap of like what they're doing and then maybe look at it from the top down and go like, okay, well, like where can I fit into that? So um, that might not be how everybody works. Some people might just like to sit down and be like, all right, well, like here's my songs. I'm going to practice them and we're going to get into a room or we're going to work it out. And then, you know, I'm going to think about my transitions, my moments, we're going to time it, you know? And so like a lot of people go through it that way, but I found it's easier to kind of work backwards because when you know where you're going, it's a little bit easier to make decisions about how to get there. You know, for, for people in the, in the group that you're describing, I would just say, be prepared and set reasonable expectations. I've, I've seen a lot of people have a really bad time and fail and not have a great experience by kind of over-promising and under-delivering, and then also having very unrealistic expectations for, for how their night is going to go on stage or maybe even how their career is going to go or how certain things are going to go as an artist. What's an example of some unrealistic expectations? So thinking that, you know, you're going to play a sold-out show when you're new. Um, and these may sound like painfully obvious, but you'd be surprised how many people fit into this category. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a lot of people that fit into this category, you know, and... You know, and you may be telling yourself like, well, I'm not that type of person, but if you show up and walk in the room and it's your third show and you're angry that only half the room is full, then that's you. <laughs> Maybe adjust your perspective a little bit. Um, and I say that with all of the love and kindness I can, because I want you to have a good career. Only if you're good. If you suck, go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you can leave that in or out if you want. I don't care. Um, no, that's staying in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, set reasonable expectations and and know how to navigate towards them. So don't don't require too much of your band, you know, because if you're starting out and you, let's let's just say that you're the artist, you're starting out, you have a budget. Maybe you don't have a budget at all and you're just scraping together every dollar you can because you want to see what you can have. Maybe you call some buddies, maybe you get some people recommended to you. You put together a little bit of a budget, you get into a rehearsal room and you get into a studio. Don't expect more of those people based on what you've dreamt up in your head about what it could sound like, you know, because at the end of the night, you go to bed and you lay down and you have this version of something in your head. And that's great. And that can be really good to establish a goal to work towards. But if you wake up the next morning and you carry that with you and imprint that onto other people and project that onto other people, you're not doing anyone any favors because they'll never be able to measure up to that. And you don't even know how to reach that, you know? So set reasonable goals and set reasonable expectations. Um, you know, if you hire people, make sure that you're aware of what they're capable of. Don't get mad if they can't do that idea in your head, you know, maybe find a different way to execute that or find a different person, you know, like that's not unreasonable to like, say like, you know, it's not working out. I, you know, I would love to call you in the future if I have something, you know, thanks for your time, but, um, I, I would love to bring someone else in, you know, you can say that you have the right to say that. But you also have the right to be reasonable and to not expect people to do more than what they're capable of, you know? So yeah, just, just don't set yourself up for failure by assuming everything's going to be perfect the first try. 
and by assuming that it's going to be exactly like it is in your head. I see that a lot with younger artists and I see that a lot with newer artists. Um, they get obsessed with this initial idea and they never allow it to develop. And then they get very bitter and resentful whenever other people can't execute that. So just do everyone, yourself included, a favor and understand that it's probably not going to be like that starting out. So just being aware of where you are and being aware of what you're capable of at any given point in time is probably the best thing that you can do. Um, any other like tactical things about what musically makes a good set? Yeah, so there are some very like measurable ways like on paper to kind of arrange a set. One of the easiest ones is to just go through. Um, this is something that I've, that I used to do all the time whenever I wasn't super familiar with the material in terms of like, if I was working with a new artist and I still wasn't just like, just didn't have like all of their material memorized. Um, I would get a piece of paper out or like a whiteboard and I would be like, I would just write down all the songs in the set and I would assign a level of intensity or energy to that song. So the scale would go from one to five. So five would be like a banger. It's your most energetic song, super high energy, doesn't ever break. And a one is like your ballad or your acoustic song or your piano only songs, the very down moment of the set or whatever. So like you have your scale of one to five, you have all your songs, go rate all the songs on a scale from one to five, then see how many fives you have, see how many fours you have, threes, twos, ones, and then create an arc you know, create a smiley face, start high, give people a break in the middle and then end high. That's not always the right answer, but that's a really good place to start. Um, and that's a really easy and tangible way to start. You know, if you have 10 songs and seven of them are really upbeat, then you might want to make songs, you know, four, five, and six down so that you can give people a little bit of variation and have some type of dynamic range to your set. You know, and that also is going to pretty quickly help you realize like, oh, I may need to write some more songs that kind of showcase this other side of me. I didn't realize so far all my songs were ballads because that's just what I like, you know? So you want to be well-rounded to a certain degree. I mean, you don't want to like sacrifice your identity and not be yourself, but you also need to understand that you're creating something for other people to consume. And if you're creating something for other people to consume, you need to somewhat make it easy for them to consume, you know? At the end of the day, you're making art for yourself. But if you want to make money, then you have to play by money rules. So that's a, that's a bitter, bitter reality. You know, I like to have something really attention grabbing at the beginning. I like to have a couple of, you know, a couple of like personal moments after like maybe the second or third song um, that kind of let people know who that person is. Then, you know, I like to have some intimate moments. I like to have some serious moments. And then I like to get back into the fun and I like to end with something that's like really captivating that leaves people being like, whoa, that was a blast, you know? So that's a pretty common way to do it. Those are not my ideas. That's what I've learned through experience and that's what I've seen works. And that's what I've learned from other people who know, who know more about this than I do. So, but I mean, it's a great place to start. Start there and then see where it goes for you terms of arranging your set and putting together your show and things like that. What about running rehearsal? Any suggestions for, for getting the most out of rehearsal? Yeah. You know, just make sure that everyone understands that rehearsal is not a time to learn something. It's a time to rehearse something. Just show up prepared, have a plan. Like if you're the artist and you're arranging rehearsal yourself and you have people that are part of your band and you text everybody and you're like, all right, here's, here's the set list rehearsals in X amount of days. You know, we've got four hours booked. See you then. If you're the artist, you know, going back to my earlier point, you know, you need to trust that people are going to show up and do their job well, but don't be discouraged if the first note of the first song, it's not perfect. 
you know, because at the end of the day, you are there to rehearse. And so there are going to be kinks you need to work out. You need to tighten things up. That's what that time is for. Um, if you're on the band side of things, fucking show up and know your fucking parts. I cannot emphasize that enough. <laughs> I cannot stress that enough to know your shit when you walk in the room. And again, that doesn't mean that it's got to be perfect whenever you open the door. When you get to when you get to a certain level, it is expected that it's perfect whenever you walk in the door. Um, that is an an unmovable truth. But you're there to rehearse, so there's going to be a certain amount of material that you're going to have to go over, and you're going to have to go over, and you're going to have to go over. You're going to have to work it out. You're going to have to finesse it. You're going to make things tight. You're going to make sure that it's working well together, and that you know you have the right kind of pocket. You have the right kind of um, you have the right kind of energy, you have the right tone, you know, you may dial in a tone and realize that like, it needs to be fine tuned in the room. That's okay. But dialing in that tone to begin with, when you get in the room, it's not okay. So show up prepared and then have a plan, you know, uh, a pretty common rehearsal workflow for me is to get in the room, chit chat for five or 10 minutes and just get a general overview of what I'd like to accomplish that day or that week if we're locked out. And then just say like, all right, so um, if it's the first time we're moving through like a new tour set, even if we know some of the songs or all the songs, if it's the first time moving through a new set for like every new tour or show or whatever, I like to just hit the songs one at a time and then go back and like work out kinks, you know, one at a time. So it's like, so if we've got 15 songs, hit songs one through 15 in order or in what, I mean, at this point it's, I don't care about the order. It's just whatever we want to hit. If we, if we have a couple of songs that we're not familiar, that we're not very familiar with, I want to do those closer to the beginning while people have energy and they're a little bit more attentive and like excited to be there. You know, when you hit hours, seven, eight, nine of a rehearsal, people are pretty drained and you know, they're mentally tired. And so if there's anything that's new that needs to be worked out, I like to do that closer to the beginning. Um, I'm a really big believer in starting off on a good foot. So if there is something that you're familiar with that you do well, I always love to just start with that to establish a baseline. So it's like a song that you've been doing for years and it's in the set. You're like, Hey guys, let's just start with the song. Let's just get warmed up, make sure everyone's monitors are okay. Get comfy with where you are in the room and just, you know, feel good about starting the day by doing something that sounds good right out of the box. And then you can move into to, to working on other stuff. So like, I, I like to acknowledge the psychology of it too. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a very smart person whenever it comes to identifying how you feel and navigating that. I'm pretty bad at it, but you know, but I do like to, to acknowledge that that's a part of making art. And that's also a part of being technical. You know, you have a technical skill set and a technical, technical facility. You're also a human with a brain and feelings. And so you have to acknowledge how certain things make you feel. And it's nice to show up for work in the morning and do a good job right off the bat. So I like to, I like to, you know, lay that as a foundation and then get into what we need to get into. So I, I would say take frequent breaks. Don't take long breaks. You know, don't run, you know, three songs and then leave for an hour. That's a waste of time. Uh, having said that, you know, I also don't think it's very productive to just marathon without stopping. You know, so ev about every hour or so, I like to take like a five-minute break, maybe a 10-minute break to literally just let people leave the room and, and decompress just because music is loud and then come back and get right back to it. So... You can take frequent breaks, but that doesn't mean that they have to take up a lot of time. It just means that you're constantly kind of changing the pace and, and it keeps people on their toes and it lets them feel like they don't have to just like marathon and just sit in their corner all day and it's exhausting. So having said that, some rehearsals are like that and they're brutal. Hit everything one by one and then put your set together and then run your set. You know, once I start getting into the set assembly, I don't really like to stop. So if it's the, if it's early in the day and we're, you know, to be like, hey guys, before lunch, we're just going to hit all the songs 
individually. And after each song, we'll stop and just make sure we're comfortable before we move on. If we need to run the song again or run a certain part of the song again, we'll do that and then we'll move on. That's the time for that. And once I start getting into the set, I kind of don't like to stop because I want to just get into the flow of what the set feels like. So let's say we get to song number four and like someone fucks up the chorus. It's like, just move on and just keep going, you know, because you wouldn't stop. If, unless it's like a catastrophic derailment, you're probably not going to stop on stage. But, you know, unless it's something serious, like just keep going, make a mental note and then don't do it again. It's okay to make a mistake, but it gets really, really not okay to make two mistakes, especially if it's the same one. Yeah, and I think it's like that in any field. You know, this is not exclusive in the music industry. Like most professions operate like this at certain levels, you know, because you have to perform, you know, you have to respect resources, you know, and if you're not going to manage resources well, um, then you're not going to get asked back. Any other just like last pieces of advice you would give to a, a young artist or band that's just starting to come up, trying to get their sea legs? You know, for starters, I would just say to just remember why you started you know you love it and you want to do something that you love that's fulfilling so just try and find a way to protect that obviously you're going to have to monetize on some level you're going to have to you're going to have to turn it into a business at some point you know you're going to have to start playing by certain you know rules of commerce and marketing at some point but like try to love it you know and try to enjoy it um it's not always going to be easy but it's going to be really hard if you don't like it um so if you start to not like it, then maybe you need to change your approach or change what you're doing or change your career path, you know? And that's not like a malicious statement. That's like legitimate. Like if you are not happy, why are you doing it? You know, have, have fun, you know, have fun. Music is the worst industry to try to have success. Yeah, in. I so know. Like why do it if you don't love it? Exactly. It's because it's, it's really difficult. It's one of the hardest industries to make it in and to even make it decently in. Um, so you, you have to love it, um, because that's going to, that's going to be a veil that will protect you from all of the, all of the really, really difficult things you have to navigate. They won't feel as difficult if you believe in where you're going and if you enjoy the, the process, but practice, put in the time, you know, and, and practicing doesn't just mean aimless practicing. That's just a hobby, you know, that's just enjoying time on your instrument. Um, practicing to me is, you know, having a goal and going like, you know, do I want to sound like someone or do I want to play like someone or do I want to play for someone? Um, how can I get there? And then ask yourself questions in reverse order until you get to the very first step, which is, you know, pick it up and be committed and be consistent. And that, and that applies to artists too, you know, whether you're songwriting or networking, or if you're trying to like go for publishing deals or like anything like that, like, you know, be consistent, have realistic goals know how to reach those goals and then wake up every day and take one more step in that direction. And it may take a long time and it might not be easy, but as long as you're moving forward and moving towards your goals um, and as long as you're enjoying it, I think that you'll be successful in your own right because you'll feel good about what you're doing. Don't assume that you're unique and that you have something to offer that someone doesn't have to offer. That's a really nihilist statement, but it's going to help you to understand that the reason why you're there is not because you're unique. It's because you work hard and it's because you are well-liked and easy to work with. That is what will keep you on a gig. You will not be on a gig because you are unique or special. You will be on a gig because you work hard and you have a great attitude and you're reliable. So if you don't hear anything else, go cry for an hour because that's a really fucking hard concept to grasp. And then... <laughs> 
<laughs> start being someone that's easy to be around and start being consistent and reliable and good at your job. So that's what I would say is just general advice. You know, and that doesn't mean that you're not a unique person or that you don't have value or that you don't have skills that other people don't possess. Obviously, we're all different. We're made, we're made uniquely and we all have different things to offer and we have different perspectives. Having said that, you're going into a very competitive industry where a lot of people can do what you do and a lot of people can do it better. So the way to set yourself apart is to know that and believe that and work hard to overcome that. And that means working hard technically and working hard with your attitude. So that's probably the best advice I could give uh, based on where I am currently in my life. You know, ask me in another 10 years and I'll probably just be like, I don't know, just fucking just just stop and sleep all day. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Well, anyway, man, thanks so much for hanging out with us and just giving us insight into what it's like running a tour and being a guitar player on that level. So that's it for my conversation today with Kyle Perrin. Real quick before we go, if you are working on new music and want to know the secrets to promoting your music to get on playlists and blogs and shared by influencers, would you sign up for our free workshop, Rock the Release? It's going to teach you how to do just that. Go to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop to sign up for that. Also, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, would you just leave a quick five-star review to help other people find the show? Really would help us out a lot. But for today, that's it, and we will see you next time.